Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello, welcome back, and thanks for listening. In case any of you are thinking that these podcasts are all about criticizing defense, that's not the case, and if time permits a little bit later in this one, I'll be looking at an industry miscreant. It's a good story from about 10 years ago, but it still has a lot of resonance today. But getting back to the main theme, um, as I've explained before, I believe that a lot of what defense is doing, particularly on the acquisition side of things, needs to be called out because the organization lacks any meaningful scrutiny. And it's changed from about 20 years ago when it was relatively open and cooperative. These days, if I were to ask a question, how many boots does a two-footed soldier need? The answer would be suppressed for reasons, reasons of national security. Anyway, let's have a look at some recent developments, probably the most important of which, for me, is the budget analysis done by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It's a conservative institute. It's independent. All policy wonks look forward to their take on the budget. There are even some people in defence who appreciate the clarity that ASPE brings to their own numbers. Anyway, what we find out from ASPE is pretty stunning. ASPE has concluded, having crunched the numbers, that defence funding is actually being reduced over the next three years. This is because that there's been no increase in funding, yet at the same time, inflation is way higher than expected. It was expected to be 3%. It's now running at 6 to 7%, and that's having a big impact on everything. Defence is compensated by finance for exchange rate fluctuations, but it's not compensated for inflation. It has to take care of that out of its own budget figures. Now, on top of things that we already know are in the pipeline, such as $9 billion for Red Spice, $32 billion for the Guided Weapons and Explosive Ordnance Enterprise, there's nuclear submarines, there's 19 billion to fund aspects of the DSR. When you put all of that together, that's a loss in real terms that we know about over the next two years of about 1.5 billion. But when you factor into account inflation, it's in fact a lot more than that. So this is a big problem for defence. It's actually a big problem for the Labour government because I'm getting resonances back in 2012 when the defence budget was cut, and as a consequence, the screams of outrage from industry and observers and conservative commentators nobbled Labour for years, and they're in the process of doing it again. They are sleepwalking into a financial disaster unless something gives. What's going to happen when dollars become tight? It will be the acquisition side of things that suffers. The reflexive response of defence is to buy more stuff, FMS, so Australian industry is really going to suffer. There's always a delayed effect with these things. Industry is doing okay now because of orders placed one, two, three years ago. Uh, but if there's a dry up in funds, that'll manifest itself again in a few years hence. Now, if people think, okay, you're just criticizing, what would you come up with? I actually have a little bit of a wish list when it comes to making some savings. I would defer or cancel the order for M1A2 main battle tanks, that's $4 billion. I defer or cancel the Apache and Blackhawk purchases, that's $11 billion. I defer and certainly study 
the C-130J replacement. That's 10 billion. So straight away, that's 25 billion. Okay, that has to be balanced out by I would order extra infantry fighting vehicles taking the current number from 129 to 300. So that's about plus 5 billion for that. We still need a replacement of older C-130Js, but I'd be having a very good look, as the Dutch have done, at the Embraer KC-390, a twin jet transport aircraft, far more capable than a C-130J and a modern generation aircraft. So when you put all of that together, that's a total saving of 14 billion. And the consequence just in these areas is for a far more modern, balanced force than the one we're in the process of acquiring. And if people were to say, oh, look, we can't offend the United States because so much of it is coming from there, I'd push back by saying, well, hang on. You don't mind offending the French by cancelling the attack class submarine program. You don't mind offending the South Koreans by cancelling the second tranche of self-propelled howitzers. So what is it about this special relationship that we have in with the United States that people are too scared to offend them? I mean, surely, you know, we're Australians, we're independent, and it should be possible to say to people in the United States, listen, we buy untold hundreds of billions of dollars worth of your stuff, and we will continue to do so. However, at the moment, we have a real budgetary squeeze, and unfortunately, terribly sorry, these programs just have got to go. Now, in these contracts, there has to be a force majeure clause somewhere. If there's not, that would seem strange. And if the United States would turn around and say to our people, no, you signed for these things, you're going to take them no matter what, and we want our money, what does that say about the so-called special relationship? Come on, people, I've got to show a bit of a spine here. It has enormous consequences not only for the amount of money that we're spending, but the way that we're spending it. Okay, Sai, let's now turn to another exemplar of what I think is just an unjustifiable FMS purchasing decision. I've touched on it before, and that's about the Surtas passive toad array system that Australia will spend something like $307 million acquiring. I've mentioned this before. Defence never announced this when I broke the story. It was followed up by the ABC. Defence of yes, indirectly confirmed that it's going to happen, justifying that this needs to occur because of Australia's deteriorating circumstances and we need rapid capability. Well, there's quite a lot to say about that. And I'll start off firstly with this rapid capability stuff. Going through FMS slows things down. It's about a minimum two-year delay before the sale gets purchased, and often it's much longer than that. If you want something rapid, go to the Australian sonar industry, which is highly capable. Australia has developed over the last 40 years in particular niche expertise in sonar. Uh, it had its genesis in the 70s and 80s when DSTO did a lot of pioneering work, realising that the waters around Australia are generally shallow and warm, and they have all sorts of peculiarities, like, as I recall, you have snapping shrimp at about 60 metres of depth, which cause absolute havoc with a whole lot of sonar operations. It's kind of unique to Australia. Anyway, so 
who have built up this expertise. It's in the national interest. It's previously been declared a priority. And now, with this absurd Sirtas decision, we're going to fritter it all away. I mean, what's the justification? Who can possibly think that this is a good idea? Imagine this. It's actually not too much of a stretch. Imagine that the Australian wine industry is in a state of crisis. China tariffs, natural disasters, you've got a whole lot of people struggling. And the government turns around and orders $307 million of wine from the Napa Valley in California. I mean, people would be rioting in the streets about this sort of stuff. It would be considered an outrage. The minister responsible who'd signed off on this would be marched out of office and, and wouldn't even be pre-selected. Yet, with this American Totoray sonar system, there's barely a ripple. Pardon the pun. I mean, come on, industry and industry associations, it's not my livelihood at stake here. It's not me that's going to be losing the technology forever. Do something about it. Agitate. Contact Miles and Conroy and just say this is completely unacceptable. If I'm sounding a bit angry, it's actually because I am. I can see the sort of road smash that's happening when it comes to Australian industry. And as I say, it's going to be 2012 all over again. It's an irony that a Labor government, which says that they're all about local jobs and spending in Australia, is sleepwalking, I believe, into yet another disaster. And if you don't believe me, and this is a bit of cross-promotion for the magazine, the next edition of which will come out pretty soon. I've recorded really a bombshell interview, and sorry for that appalling pun, with Rob Nyoa, the CEO of the, the company that bears his name, where we talk about the guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise in the context of FMS purchases. And Rob, for those of you who, who know him, he has a purely commercial background He's one of Australia's great defence speakers, and whatever he has to say, believe me, is well worth listening to. And I'll just give you a couple of quotes from a very, very long interview that will give you the flavour of where he's coming from. He says, in my view, FMS is redundant and no longer fit for purpose in regard to munitions. And then a little later, if we are going to rely on FMS, or even think that we are going to get any meaningful addition to our GUIO inventory within a short time via FMS, that would be a very flawed assumption. And Rob goes on to elaborate on that. He also, by the way, comes up with a number of pretty quick solutions. And let's just hope that people in government listen to what he's got to say. Now, in that context, a shout out to the new head of GUIO, Air Marshal Leon Phillips, as previously bagging defence for releasability of information, at least Air Marshal Phillips, who I've never met, again has provided some information to the magazine about his perspective on the GUIO. What I'm hoping is that he's senior enough that if people in the department tried to muzzle him from speaking, he said, listen, it's undoubtedly in our interests to communicate with industry, and if you try and stop me from doing so, I'm going to quit. Anyway, there's also uh, his interview and he explains his perspective, which is really all about urgency and cooperation with industry. And now to the industry miscreant. Pour yourself a glass of wine or uh, freshen up the pot of tea. 
the company that I would like to name and shame is Sikorsky, now owned entirely by Lockheed Martin, one of the world's great military helicopter manufacturers. Australia is a very important customer of theirs. This year, they are actually celebrating their 100th birthday. So happy birthday, Sikorsky. Air 9000, which was the, or still is, the attempt to rationalise Australia's military helicopter fleet. And in particular, around 2011, 2012, 2010, there was a decision to move for a new generation of naval combat helicopter. Navy made no particular secret of the fact that they wanted the next version of the Seahawk, the MH60R, the Romeo version. There was another potential contender in the form of Airbus. They'd just been supplying Army with um, early versions of Taipan. There was an ASW variant of that helicopter on the growth path, and Airbus pushed very hard for a competition. For them to be selected, it was always going to be high risk, but they thought, you know, we'll, we'll give this a go. That at first was resisted by Navy and Defence, but for a whole lot of reasons, there was finally a, a competition. But I have to say, as a close observer of it, it was somewhat lopsided. Airbus were fighting with one hand tied behind their back, probably both hands tied behind their back, because first of all, Navy already had a preferred solution in mind. And secondly, Defence and Navy muzzled Airbus and muzzled Sikorsky saying, look, guys, we want this evaluation conducted in an atmosphere of calm. We don't want to be seeing a whole lot of ads in major newspapers. We don't want you whipping up the Australian populace into a frenzy about all of this. Just take it easy. You know, you can do a little bit of promotion. You can communicate with the media, but just don't go over the top. Now, both companies, of course, went along with that. I mean, when you've got a clear instruction with defence, you'd be crazy not to. However, we then bring in the USN. The USN wasn't limited at all by any strictures from our defence bureaucrats. So the USN openly pushed for the MH60 Romeo solution. They did it at conferences. They did it at briefings, all of this sort of stuff. And finally, the media, including me and, and a few others, and Airbus, we're saying, look, this is outrageous. How, how can you possibly claim that it's a level playing field when Airbus can't say anything about their ASW helicopter, but Sikorsky can wheel out the most powerful marketing weapon of all time, namely the United States Navy? Anyway, Defence finally prevailed on the USN as well to knock that off. And it was at this moment that Sikorsky, I don't want to suggest they started to panic. But let's say they were no longer as complacent as they used to be, because Airbus clearly had a huge advantage when it came to Australian content, because they were assembling the Taipan in Brisbane. And so their argument was, hey, look, it's the same airframe for the ASW variant, so we'll keep on churning them out at Brisbane with a very high level of Australian content, whereas the Sikorsky solution was a fully imported one. So Sikorsky were thinking, what can we do here? Now, they came up with actually, you know, on the surface of it, quite an attractive solution. They offered 
to buy back all of Army's Black Hawk helicopters that were being replaced by the Taipan. They said they would take them back from defence and they would then spend a billion dollars with the Australian aerospace industry, aerospace sector, to refurbish all of these Black Hawk helicopters, bring them up to date with technology, and that they would then sell the Black Hawk helicopters on the open market. Win-win. A billion dollars into Australian industry. Sikorsky would get these refurbed helicopters and would sell them at a profit. So, good story, right? Well, we in the media, of course, faithfully repeated this. We emphasised it. It looked like a wonderful deal. So, fast forward to the order being placed and this story of the billion-dollar investment in Australian industry just vanished. There seemed to be no follow-up from government. There seemed to be no follow-up from defence. It turned out that it was just an empty promise. Now, fast forward today, and again with this next order of Black Hawk helicopters from Sikorsky, not even worrying about the earlier additional 12 MH60Rs that took place about a year ago, if I were the Defence Minister, I'd be saying to my staff, hey, get me the CEO of Sikorsky on the phone. And the conversation I'd be having would be along the lines of, hang on, 10 years ago, you promised to make this big investment in Australia. What happened to it? And unless I received a very satisfactory reply, I'd be saying, within a fortnight, I want an update on that. And I want it in legally binding form. Here's the phone, direct phone number of the secretary, direct phone number of the CDF. If I haven't heard back in a fortnight, I'm going to stop this purchase and I'm going to keep the Taipans in service for a whole lot longer. Because I don't know what other people think, but I certainly feel, still feel this sense of outrage that a company can go ahead and make a commitment of this magnitude and benefit from it in terms of publicity and market credibility and all of those sorts of things, win the order and then just drop it completely. And shame on defence, by the way, for not following up on any of that. Thank you again for tuning in and see you next time. There's a lot more to say about that helicopter story. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.